It is 20 years since Fitzroy faded into football history. There was a merger of sorts with the Brisbane Bears in 1996, but Fitzroy's existence as an AFL club was over after 100 seasons. Michael Conlon was one of the club's all-time favourite players. Welcome, Mick. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. It's still painful for the Fitzroy diehards. What's it like as an ex-player of this club? I mean, do you miss it? Um, is there a hole in your heart? Oh, definitely. I, I think uh, there's certainly a great history. It was a very proud club, uh, one of the longest-standing clubs, and I think still right up there in terms of premiership wins. So for that not to be around today is, is a very, very sad. Uh, but I think you know the transition and the merger with the Brisbane Bears, as given the Brisbane Lions now, has certainly, hopefully, been able to give everybody a club that they can still barrack for. Did you follow the Lions to Brisbane? I mean, are you on side with, um, with the Brisbane Lions? Yeah, absolutely. And I sort of helped the club through that transition at the time. And I thought it was inevitable that 12 clubs couldn't survive in Melbourne. I remember the great Alan Aylett mm. had said to me and pleaded with me in 1979 that we should support a national competition and support the move of Fitzroy to move to Sydney then in 1979. So I went through the opportunities that were put before us on two occasions uh, to go to be the Sydney Lions. And then several years later, I think it was about 85, we had the opportunity to become the, the Brisbane Lions. Mm. But unfortunately, the club didn't take up that opportunity. Let's talk about the, that 1985 move to make you the Brisbane Lions. My understanding is that there was a vote of players that you're all called together in the presence of the then Chairman Leon Weigard and asked to vote about a move to Brisbane and the players unanimously supported that. Yeah, that's 100% correct. We all actually were standing in the tennis court opposite the Wesley College. We'd had a Sunday morning training run and Leon had uh, suggested that the AFL wanted us to move and relocate. Were we in favour of that? And I can remember David Parkin, who was the current coach at the time, and the Paul Roos and Gary Pertz and all the senior players, Matt Rendell. And we all put our hand up. We just, everyone? Everyone. Uh, at that point in time, we could see that our training facilities weren't adequate to keep up with the top clubs and that we needed to have uh, better facilities and hopefully more fans and followers. So I think um, we all thought that that decision that we all put our hand up in favour of, that we were going to be moving to Brisbane. So why did it fall over? On a personal note, I don't understand or weren't um, really privy to all the information and the politics around that, but unfortunately we never moved forward and I think we were playing our home games at Victoria Park yeah. at the time and then we relocated to the Princess Park. We were training at the old South Melbourne Oval, so we were really just across the lake from the Junction Oval to the Lakeside Oval and we are playing home games at uh, Princess Park at Carlton's facility. So, Just you were nomads, weren't you? I mean, you just, there were so many... How many different locations did you call home in your time at Fitzroy? Yeah, look, it, it, we went through a, a really um, difficult period because we had probably the best facilities in the league when I first started in 77. We had the Junction Oval, mm -hmm. the best playing surface, the best fitness facilities and all the Albert Park facilities around that. And then, of course, we came up with the thought, or the club came up with the move to Northcote uh, <laughs> as a training facility and our home games at Victoria Park at Collingwood. So to move away from those facilities and to go to Northcote, which was really substandard facilities for That's the Northcote VFA ground. Correct. Yep. So yep. we went from you know locker change rooms to hanging your clothes on a nail, a bowling green facility at the Junction Oval to an oval that was um, substandard for AFL, VFL um, training facilities, and we had no gymnasium. Mm. 
And then, of course, we really could rarely get on Victoria Park to train because it was a wet season and the Collingwood Football Club didn't really want us training mm. on there. So we were really nomads. And then, of course, we went to Princess Park afterwards and then our home base became at um, the Lakeside Oval. Mm. So we didn't... We moved back not far away from the junction over to the lakeside, but again, the facilities there were very substandard. How deflating was it when you've all met as a group and decided on this adventure, I mean, moving to Brisbane, and then to find that it didn't happen? I mean, did that affect the morale of the player group? I think um, the younger players it did. I think the young Pert, Ruse, Osborne, uh, Lynch, those players were coming through, Johnny Blakey, etc. I think it would have been inevitable and great for them had the club decided to relocate to Brisbane and to really set the club up for long-term um, success. So I felt for them I was more in the latter years yep. of my career and I was prepared to move if the club was uh, going to take me with that group of players. So I just felt they missed a great opportunity uh, not to be you know, the Brisbane Lions. What's your enduring memory, Mickey, of, of your time at Fitzroy? Look, it's an amazing memory um, to get the opportunity to play at that high level of standard coming from the ACT. I'd only had two senior years playing football. I was just turned 19 years of age and out of the blue, the opportunity to play uh, in the VFL, the highest competition in the country, was just a dream come true for me. And I took the first opportunity I had, which Fitzroy was the first club to give me an opportunity to sign a Form 4 back then, mm, and that was a that. really big opportunity. Each club had two Form 4s at that time, didn't they? And they could sign anyone in the country on one of those. Correct. And for a you know, kid coming out of the ACT to have a Form 4 um, uh, put in front of him, where most of the time it went to the Waffle or the mm. Sandful or Tasmanian kids, that was an opportunity I couldn't resist. So I couldn't get down there quick enough. And I played my first game in the under-19s for the club. And the, part of the decision-making of going to Fitzroy was they were on bottom of the ladder. I said to my father, if I'm going to get a game, probably mm -hmm. best to play at this club where they really, I've got a really good opportunity to get a senior game. Tell me about your father. Your father, Neil, was an outstanding player in Tasmania. He'd been invited over to play for Richmond and declined that opportunity. Did that spur you and to sort of say, I'm not going to waste my opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'll never forget the great Frank Bibby and Don Finesse sat in a small room and said that we're going to... Uh, we're prepared to sign you if you sign and we're going to give you 20 minutes to think about it. Well, this is in Melbourne? At in the, Melbourne yeah. on a Thursday night just before the clearances were due to close and uh, we had 15, 20 minutes to discuss it. My father had said to me, look, one of the probably saddest things I uh, regret was not moving across to Melbourne and playing for the Richmond Football Club. My only thoughts are that you probably don't want to um, you know, go past that opportunity. So... He was a great mentor and a great father, of course, and uh, we uh, couldn't sign up quick enough. Mm. Was there an incentive in, at that time? Did you get anything? Royce Hart got his half a dozen shirts. Did you get anything? Yeah, actually, it was. For me, I was getting $7 a game playing for the Monica wow. Football Club, and they said, we'll give you $100 a game and a $1,000 cash signing on fee. So... I was quickly to look for the pen. I couldn't sign quick enough. <laughs> That's Mick. not bad, though, then. No. Now, Mick, there's a misconception about Fitzroy of your time. I think people think that the Roys in their last 10, 20 years were a poor footy team. That's not the case. Is you played in 13 seasons at Fitzroy, you played finals in five of those years. Yeah, look, uh, fortunately, when I did join Fitzroy on the bottom of the ladder at that point in time, the club went through a fantastic turnaround. In 1979, going into my third season, we made the finals the first time for 20 or 30 years. 
And uh, during that period of time, we played in uh, nine finals matches. I did personally, we won a night premiership. And I felt through that 13 years, in particular probably from 1979 through to 1986, a year didn't go by, Michael, where I didn't think we could make the mm. finals. I, th I really did believe that we could play in finals. And we had some amazing leaders in Gary Wilson and Bernie Quinlan. And, you know, running out behind those guys, you really felt you could win. So we had a great attitude at the club through those years. So, um, you know, they were fantastic years for Fitzroy. Let me ask you, let me take you back to a game played at the Junction Oval in 1983, round 13. North Melbourne's on top of the ladder. They play the Roys. Fitzroy beats the top team in the competition by 150 points. Quinlan... Rendell and Conlon kicked 22 goals between them. So that the, that's got to be almost the highlight of your career, doesn't it? Yeah, look, uh, we felt like a, um, I would say, we're a blue-collar club and we always uh, had the backs against the wall. North Melbourne was a big, strong club at that point in time. So we were very determined and we felt probably in 83 was the best talent we had and the most amount of depth. And we had a fantastic team, we really did. And I think it just witnessed and signified that in terms of, you know, the likes of Keith Greggs and Gary Dempsey and Wayne Schimmelbush, they were a star-studded mm. team, Ross Glenn didn't. Yep. So I think to really demonstrate that we could take on the best and beat them by over 140, 150 points. points, Matt Rendell really uh, demonstrated his skills against Gary Dempsey. And I think Quinlan kicked uh, eight, probably should have kicked about 12 or 13 that day. Um, we really did have a great side. Let's fast forward to September of 83. I think from memory that was probably when Fitzroy had its best chance to play in a grand final, maybe even pinch the flag. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. So what went wrong? You played Hawthorne in the second semi, a contentious decision late in the game. I think your mate Mickey Nettlefold might have carried the ball over the line with some intent. He got pinged for that. Tucky kicks a goal for Hawthorne, you lose. Yeah, look, 83 no doubt was our best team. Probably the hardest team and the bogey team for us that year was Hawthorne. They were probably the only team that beat us that year um, on both occasions. So we always knew we were up against it. And it was always a close game with the Hawks. And I think Quinlan kicked nine. Probably the decision of the deliberate out-of-bounds was the first decision ever made by an umpire. So we were a bit unlucky. So you're saying no one, no umpire previously had penalised a team for what Mickey Nettlefold did? No. That was the first ever recording of a player paddling the ball alongside the boundary line and deliberately thinking that the umpire, he, he did it deliberately, but no one on that record at that point in time had been pinged, especially in a big finals yeah. match. Massive call, wasn't it? A massive call. It was sort of like, it almost must have reinforced the view of you blokes that the gods were against you. Whatever you tried to do, things would go wrong. Yeah, we had a couple of things that didn't go our way that day. Um, I think our younger players were, some of them it was their first finals game. So uh, to play against Hawthorne in front of, you know, 60,000, 70,000 people, they were overawed by it as well, whereas Hawthorne had a probably slightly more experienced team. So I think to really let that opportunity slip by was a catalyst because we knew if we got past Hawthorne, we were very confident of, of taking on North Melbourne, who we clearly defeated twice that year. Mm -hmm. Um, we'd also beaten Essendon twice that year, but Essendon caught us off guard. Gary Sidebottom had a fantastic year that year and went down with a knee injury just before half-time. And I think physically 
we were belted that day by Essendon. Um, legitimately, but they physically were legitimately. a lot stronger. Legitimately. Well, legitimately. We call it legitimate <laughs> in those days, Mick. <laughs> Did, is that the year that Bernie Quinlan kicked 116? Uh, 84, I think he kicked 116, but I'd say Bernie would have kicked 100 also in 83. I'll give you some names, Mickey, of blokes that you played with. Wilson Quinlan Rendell, Ruse Pert Lynch Osborne. Is there one or two that stand out of that? That's an elite group. Is there one or two that stand out? Look, they all are fantastic players. Probably the two that stand out for me early was Gary Wilson and Bernie Quinlan. You know, I played with them as a young boy coming up and they were great leaders and role model. Gary as a captain and a leader on and off field was amazing. And I, he, I think he was a catalyst and set up the success for Fitzroy. Bernie was amazing. We fortunately had Bernie at the peak of his career and the boys loved him. Mm. All the player group just absolutely thought the world of him. And then we had the young crop coming through. The, all on the same time, we got Pert, Ruse and Osmond, who were amazing athletes and great players. And young Lynch was coming through. Mm -hmm. And that was latter years. But I think, inevitably, probably Ruse and Quinlan would probably fight out for who, in my view, was probably the greatest player of all time. Ruse but, and Quinlan, uh, ahead of Wilson. I think Gary was a completely different player. And uh, I think... Um, uh, Wilson, for his size, pound for pound, was uh, the greatest rover to play the game in my era that I played. He demonstrated that. But I think in terms of athleticism and, and sheer um, excitement to watch, Quinlan and Ruse were probably players I'd never ever seen before. They just were superstars. Talking about athleticism, uh, I was interested, I was checking the encyclopedia of footballers you're listed as playing at 70 kilos. My guess would have been you played at about 85 to 88. You, I mean, you were known as a tank, weren't you? You were athletic and strong and, and powerful. Yeah, look, I arrived in, in Melbourne at 11 and a half stone, whatever that equates to in kilos. And I understand that. And they told me uh, the first pre-season I wasn't to run. I just needed to stay in the gym and put some weight on, drink plenty of milkshakes, eat plenty of Mars bars. Familiar pose there, mate. Have a look at that. Oh, there you go. So you can That's be running it. in the 100 metres final at an Olympics with that pose? Yeah, well, I always dreamed of being a sprinter outside of playing football. I actually loved athletics. So, really, we were a, a slightly built team and we had some great fitness advisors, the great Maury Rayner, and mm -hmm. uh, we embarked on a really strong fitness program in the summer programs and we did a lot of weights compared to a lot of AFL clubs at the time that really didn't do many weights. And over three, four, five years, a lot of us, a lot of the younger players really started to develop quite size. So I went from an average of um, 82 kilos to the end of my career, I finished at 90 kilos. Mm. And what, 5'10"? 5'10 and a half, yeah. Collingwood six-footer. Yeah. <laughs> just. Uh, just. <laughs> but I probably on average played around 85, 86. And, uh, you know, the Dougie Barwicks, the Richard mm. Osbournes, the Gary Perts, all those players, and, and Lynchy himself, they all really worked hard in the gym. And that's something that we really prided ourselves on. We're a blue-collar club, but we trained, we felt, trained harder than any other club. Mick, when people see that picture there, and I'm, this is not telling you anything you don't know, I suspect, but there was a view outside of Fitzroy that these blokes, Conlon and co, must be on something other than natural development. Were you aware of that um, perception? Yeah, look, and I did. You'd always get called, you know, steroids, Conlon, yep. over yep. the back fence by, you know, the uh, fan club or the opposition team. But I think if I look back, you know, I started doing weights in 1977 to the stage where after four, five, six years, I was doing weights 
um, probably three, four nights a week uh, before and after training. Pre-season, I'd be doing them five, six days a week. I was, you know, we, we probably underwent some really tough, strenuous training programs. So by the time I got to 26, 27, I really started to develop some size. And I look back on the John Morsefolds and the young guy McKenna's who went through yep. a similar transition. But we always said, come down and we're happy to have any blood yeah. test you want us to have. But I think just we had the athleticism and we had a good crop of athletes. And you actually loved weights, didn't you? You were happy doing weights. Yeah, I can remember Wolsey actually saying to me, I don't want you doing any more weights. Did he? They felt yeah. I was getting yeah. a little bit slow and a little bit losing some agility. And I certainly look back on that now and would tend to agree. I went from a winger, ruck, rover, half-forward flanker to being a permanent forward pocket player. Mm because I think I probably got too heavy. You loved the goals, Mick, didn't you? I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with that, but you <laughs> did... If the ball was in your hands and you were within 60 metres of goal, you were going to have a shot, weren't you? Yeah. Well, I played permanent forward pocket for about three or four years because Gary Wilson never came off the ball. <laughs> yeah. And we would practise every Wednesday nights under his leadership and to the stage where I remember Gary Wilson and I would be the only ones training Wednesday night on an off night to... The stage where in the mid 80s we'd have 30 players down there on our off night, all practicing their goal kicking, snapshots, mm. doing their gym work. We had that culture at the club. And I felt for a small player, if there was a crumb or a loose ball, I really had to make the most of the opportunity being starved playing majority of the time in a forward pocket. So I got to a stage where I really was confident enough if I did get a loose ball, I was going to get a goal. Mm. I want to take you back to uh, an event you're very familiar with, the elimination final of 1986. I must say, in all honesty, it was one of my all-time favourite days at the footy. The Roys were the underdogs playing the mighty powerful Bombers at Waverley. You've had a quiet afternoon on Michael Thompson, haven't you? And there's about a minute left in the game. I had a shocker of a day. And it's one of those days where you feel fantastic physically, but just couldn't get near the ball. I had four kicks up till then. And I look back on that now, how I actually stayed on the field and wasn't dragged mm. is really unbelievable. It just shows it at David Park and, and I can only ever thank him at <laughs> that point in time for keeping me on the field. And I just knew that if I had the opportunity, I was, and I just missed one about 15 minute mark of the last quarter, I had a kick and just missed. And I thought, God, help us if we lose this game. And I, and I didn't get that goal. So I was desperate to hopefully get a goal. I remember Leon Mork-Harris coming out of the centre, dodging one, and he wasn't the quickest bloke in, in the game at that time, but he was good on his feet, went around another bloke, and for some reason, Thompson had played you so closely, you were probably 10 metres in the clear, weren't you? Yeah, look, that was the only chance. Uh, I lost him around the back of a pack, and Michael Thompson did a fantastic job that day. And I lost him around the back of the pack, and I always thank Leon Harris because he uh, <laughs> kept my career going. Had I not got that goal, it probably would have been the end of my career. And Mork, fortunately, was able to dodge that player and put a really good pass out to myself. And, and uh, of course, the rest is history. But um, that was uh, just probably one of the greatest games I ever played in. It was a real Cinderella story because, um, again, we went into that game without Bernie Quinlan and Matt Randell. A lot of people probably don't remember that. But when you walk out and you lost your two-star players. And I could see some of the younger players were a little bit concerned that day because they were late withdrawals. And yet we went in undermanned. Essendon had a fantastic team that year and were probably tipped to win the flag. Mm. And I'll never forget the great Yabby Jean said um, that 
you definitely helped us win a flag that mm. year because Essendon was their bogey team. Yeah, Brucey was pretty excited that day from my memory of the vision of uh, the on-field scenes after the siren. Oh, look, Rusey played a great game that day. I think uh, the Essendon players were trying to wipe him out on a couple of occasions. He was in great form, 86. He probably should have won the Brownlow that year. And I saw Paul grow up as a young kid, come through the under-19s, and we had a great relationship. And uh, we really um, powered up well, and it was just great to see. And I think he was acting captain on the day. Mm. Rusey's big on the... the he, he almost termed you, not in these words, but like you were the glue of that group. Which is, a, which is a tribute to you. He said that he told me on one occasion when he was uh, in his early days as captain and he was struggling and you counselled him about that. Um, so you, were, you embraced the younger blokes, didn't you? Yeah, look, at young Purdy, Aussie, um, Rusey in particular. What, Lynchy, picking Lynchy up for training? Young Lynchy, a yeah. young Tasmanian boy. Um, I felt that they were great lads and I think uh, Paul, uh, Gary and Richard and you know, Alistair Lynch, for example, they were great recruits for the club. Paul Ruse was a superstar and Paul had had ups and downs. The media were very, very uh, strong on him at that point in time. What do you mean? What's that mean? I think they were critical of him in certain um, terms uh, of not probably playing as well as they should, mm. but he was a favourite to win the Brownlow. And he was carrying a lot of weight as a captain of the club. And I thought he was a fantastic leader. And I think it was good as an older player just to be in the back to help him through that, and not that he needed much help. Mike. Because he seems so self-assured. On all the times I've known Ruzi, you always think that he's on good terms with himself. Do you remember him coming to you and sort of saying, I'm struggling with whatever aspect it was? Yeah, I think he was carrying the weight uh, of the club, and the club was going through a different, difficult transition on and off field. And I think um, he had to step up really quickly. As a young man, he did that exceptionally well. So it was just great to be able to be there and support him because I remember him as a young 17, 18-year-old boy coming through and to see him mature so quickly and the expectations that everybody had on him, I think it was good just to be in the background as a senior player to help him through that. I reckon there was a unique bond among the Fitzroy blokes, the blokes that you played with. And I know in 2005 the Swans win the flag, Ruzi's the premiership coach and suddenly you all come together. 12 or 15 of you to celebrate with your old mate. Yeah, look, uh, Ruzi uh, led that young pack coming through at a really fantastic time that Fitzroy was going through in the early 80s. And I think to have one of us mm. go on to coach a premiership team was a fantastic achievement. And uh, I think Paul never really wanted to leave Fitzroy, either did Gary Pert. So inevitably he went on to the Sydney Swans and ultimately got the ultimate dream in football, coaching a premiership team. And to have one of us, as we would say, mm. to go and celebrate that uh, amongst the playing group that he came through was a fantastic opportunity. And I think uh, Paul um, would always reflect back on his time at Fitzroy and I think it's something that he would always pass on to his younger players that the group at that point in time were probably the hardest working playing group in the competition with poor facilities, mm. um, not a lot of depth, but we worked and trained very hard and were a very tight group. You had six coaches in 13 years. Is that, is that, uh, does that create problems in itself? I, definitely. I think, um, you know, unfortunately, that did happen. You know, I had the Kevin Rose, Graham Campbell uh, were fantastic. Billy Stevens was like a father to me, him and Don Finesse at the time. And then, of course, I had Wolsey come mm. in, um, who I played with Robert. And it was amazing uh, coach. And then, of course, after that, I had the great David Parkin. So everyone had different game plans. 
So to go through a transition of changing different game plans and the way each coach wanted you to play was in some ways challenging. As a young player, it probably wasn't for me in those early days. But I think the transition of Robert Walls to David Parkin, totally different game plans. Take us back to the unbelievable time when two AFL clubs swapped coaches. Robert Walls goes back to Carlton, David Parkin comes to Fitzroy. It's, it's inconceivable, isn't it? And, and yet it happened. Yeah, it was. It was a big change for the club because everyone loved Wolsey. Um, you know, all the playing group loved Robert. And Robert, I think, through the transition off-field, there was a lot of problems at the club. And, of course, Carlton had sacked David Parkin. So I think Wolsey had a great opportunity to go back and coach the club that he originally came from. And, of course, we got David, who was wounded, yep. uh, wounded professionally, and who was extremely passionate and motivated to prove Carlton wrong. And I think one of the first things David saw that we weren't a bad bunch of athletes, we mm. weren't a big group, and his view was we've just got to keep the ball, don't put it up in the air because we'll get slaughtered, we need to run and carry. So if you look back on the way football was started, Park and we were a real run mm. and carry side. Mm. Wolsey was very supportive and protective of his own, whatever club he was at. The day that Mickey Malthouse smacked you, Mick, um, Fitzroy's playing Richmond. Mick got you high, didn't he? Yeah, it was a, it was a big game at the MCG and uh, there was a lot at stake and I was sitting under a ball waiting for it and I could hear the ambulance coming. <laughs> Mick. I knew I was in trouble because I'd just kicked two goals earlier on Mick and he was, he was blowing steam out of his ears. So I thought, this is not good. Unfortunately, one of my teammates put a high one up and I didn't remember much after that. Did you get square? Ever square up? Well, the only way I got square with him uh, a couple of years later in his first coaching year at Footscray. Um, uh, we played Footscray at the Junction Oval and I managed to kick ten goals on a player <laughs> and he hopefully left that player on me all day. So <laughs> I thought that was getting square. A few of your mates, you might have uh, forgotten what happened that day you were hit, but a few of your mates said that you were screaming that you wanted to go back out there and square up with Mick. Can you remember that? I can't remember that no. personally. Does it sound like you? Um, it does sound like me. Yeah. I may have said it, but um, going through concussion at the time, I couldn't remember it. You, you were physical as a player, weren't you? But you, I don't remember you being dirty. I mean, you, you, you'd love sort of crashing through packs uh, rather than just whacking blokes. Is that, that fair? I, I would still say you live by the sword, you die mm. by the sword. Um, what I got, I got even. Um, <laughs> so I think it was, I'd square off. You're genuine in this love for Fitzroy, aren't you? Because I know the Fitzroy supporters say you were always available to them. I mean, no one, none of the players met the supporters with more enthusiasm than you. You knew half of them, didn't you? Yeah, look, I, I think I got on very well. I understood them very well. I'd come from a similar background to the majority of their uh, supporters. And I think uh, Arthur Wilson was always great in reminding me that, um, that that's really what keeps the club together, is its fans. I reckon you're probably the most dapper bloke to have ever sat in that chair. But you were like <laughs> that when you played, weren't you? I mean, you, your mates say that you would train shower and then put the collar and tie and, and jacket back on. You've always been a fashion player. That's something I've, I've always learnt. You never know who you're going to bump into, Michael. Hmm. So when you do get that opportunity, hopefully try and make a good impression. Mick, great career. It's, uh, it's nice to reflect on uh, Fitzroy as a club and Fitzroy uh, you as the player. And um, it's just reminded me of so many good fond memories that we have of events gone by. Uh, it's a rich history that you and Fitzroy have got and you're entitled to be very proud of it. Thank you very much, Michael. Appreciate the opportunity. This has been a Fox Footy production. Part of the Fox Sports Network.